Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It's hard to believe, but uh, our long, long 100 Things sermon series is drawing to a close. And it's become like an old friend, and I'm not sure what to do now that it's ending. We're, this is Sermon 99 out of 100. You don't have to clap that hard. <laughs> Come on. But there's got to be a world record in there somewhere for the longest series in the history of the church. And we're about to wrap it up. Next week, we'll have a guest speaker for Father's Day. And then on the 24th, I'll give message 100. And then after all that, Lord willing, we may produce a little coffee table book where Heath's illustration will be on one page and a synopsis of the sermon will be on the other, and we will release it for you guys to purchase just to remember the seven years that we spent together in this series. We'll see if that happens or not, but God willing, that will be an awesome project to get out there. Well, that's enough introduction. Um, message number 99. The title is No Confidence in the Flesh, and... I'm wondering what has happened. There it is. No confidence in the flesh. Randy, thank you for reading the passage for us. I wonder, when you think of the Christian faith, if joy is one of the first words that pops into your mind in association with Christianity. When you think of Christianity, is one of the first things you associate with it joy. This irrepressible gladness of spirit. Is that one of the first things you associate, not just with Christianity in general, but with your own Christian experience? Now, it may, it may not describe the way that you're feeling about life right now. I wish I could do a show of hands. I just, sometimes I wonder what the mood is in the room I'm preaching to. But I would wager that for even up to half of us right now sitting in this room, Joy would not be the first word that we would use to describe what life feels like right at this moment. Am I right? Give me a subtle nod if you're one of those half. Yeah. It probably would not. And on a regular basis, I wouldn't be surprised if you would say that in general, your Christian experience hasn't drift over the brim with joy. It probably does not describe the family or the church you grew up in all the time. And so it's likely that for you, Christianity and joy don't always go hand in hand. But make no mistake about it, joy is one of the most important aspects of true Christianity that there can be. And the Bible is very, very careful to explain to us that there is really no such thing as a valid Christianity which is joyless. If your entire experience of the Christian faith has been relatively unjoyful, then what the Bible would say to you is you haven't discovered true Christianity just yet. In fact, do you know that the word... Excuse me. I keep thinking someone's poking me in the back. The word joy in its various forms, exists 120 times. It occurs 120 times in just the New Testament. It's unmistakable. What God is saying is joy and Christianity must go together 
if we're talking about true biblical covenant under Christ Christianity. Let me just give you a couple examples just to make the case for you, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, <clears throat> he hid it again, and then, listen, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Normally, when we say, get rid of everything and exchange it for the kingdom, you don't think of joy as the motivation. You think of duty, of pressure. But in his joy, he found something worth more than everything else he had. This is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. But the angel said to them, this is announcing the birth of Christ, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That's what good news is supposed to produce. It's supposed to produce great joy. Wouldn't it be great if after the first game of the series against Philadelphia, excuse me, we found out that Derrick Rose hadn't actually hurt himself too badly. It was just a little little sprain. He's okay. He's going to keep playing. Wouldn't that good news have produced great joy in the city of Chicago. Amen. Good news produces a response of great joy. We call the gospel good news. And if your response to that does not include joy, something is missing. Let me keep making the case here. John 15 verses 10 through 11. If you obey my commands. Right there. That's not a very joy producing concept. But if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that why? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus praying before his crucifixion in the garden of Gethsemane prayed these words. He said to God, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of of my joy within them. Let's keep going on. Acts chapter 1, chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Not convinced? Let's keep going. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.24. I'm not going to read all 120 occurrences. But are you getting the message? <clears throat> we want to work together with you so you will be full of joy as you stand firm in the faith. And how could we forget this simple one? 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Be joyful always. <clears throat> I could finish and read the other 110 references to joy, but I don't think I need to do that. When you read the New Testament, paying attention to it, the one thing that is unmistakable is that if you are a born-again Christian, joy must be a part of the experience. Now, I don't say that to say to you, force a smile so that people are convinced you're a Christian. What I say is, if you are a Christian by your own reckoning but you have a 
habitual state of joylessness, something is broken in your Christianity. Something is missing from the picture of what you call New Covenant Christianity. If your experience of walking with Jesus does not include a regular occurrence of something which you would call joy, then it's time to roll up your sleeves and investigate, what am I missing? What am I missing? Just like when the whole nation is on fire for the Avengers movie, and you go watch and you go, I don't get why everyone's so excited. Bunch of men in tights fighting. What's and, and everyone's like, are you crazy? And what are you going to think? After a while, you're going to go, I'm missing something. Everyone else thinks this is awesome. What am I missing? That's the feeling I'm trying to evoke in you. If your experience of Christianity has been joyless, then I want you to feel like something is not right. I don't want you to go to bed every night going, well, maybe that's as good as it gets. That's wrong. It gets much better. It's supposed to be much better. Don't go to bed feeling you've lived a day as a Christian if it hasn't included joy. God has more for you. Galatians 5.22 actually says that one of the visible signs that the Holy Spirit is in us, which is just another way of saying one of the visible signs that I am in fact born again, is that there will be joy. He calls them the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's just another way of saying when you are possessed by the Spirit of God, what comes out? And remember I taught you before, in the same way that when you're possessed by the demon... There are certain, you know, like crazy manifestations. You're like, that dude's possessed. Or when you see a basketball player on fire, you say he's playing like a man possessed. Well, when you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, one of the things we can't help noticing in you is that person is crazy joyful. There's something just disturbingly joyful about this person. Their countenance, their perspective on life, their attitude is marked by, among other things, Joy. Paul considered Christian joy to be so important for us to grasp that in the, in the first chapter of this letter to the Philippians, in a rare moment of real personal confession, he says, guys, if I could speak honestly with you, the truth is, I would rather die and just go home to be with Jesus and rest. And Paul had the right to say that because, man, that guy's ministry was tiring. I have a cush job compared to Paul. I mean, I, I love my life. If I had to live Paul's life, I'd probably say the same thing. I'd rather die and just go home. But, and here's what he says, but the reason that I think it's better for me to keep on living, he says in these verses here, Philippians 1, 25, listen to what he says, because I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. In other translations, what it says is, I'm not going to die now. It's better for me to stay with you because my being in your life will lead to your growing in joy. One of the highest pastoral priorities is that the people we shepherd grow to be more joyful over time. Not more laden with guilt, not more beaten down and discouraged, but joyful because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A joyless church is at least in part a sign of an unfaithful pastor. So if you're joyless, I apologize. God help me to shepherd you better. Because one of the highest priorities we should have as spiritual leaders 
is that the people we lead are growing in their joy. And so as Paul begins this third chapter, and by the way, this is not a three-point sermon. I'm just going to talk until I'm done. One big point, all right? So don't be like, well, how come he hasn't splashed the first point yet? This, we're already well into the sermon, okay? Listen, here's how he begins this third chapter of the letter. It sounds like he's about to end. He's like, finally. He's like a preacher. Finally means I got two more chapters coming. I'm only halfway there. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's how he's going to end. That's his last word. But as he says those words, he's going, speaking of rejoicing, why don't we rejoice? And he he gets on this little train of thought, and he goes on a two-chapter diversion where he explains to them, it's not so easy for you to hear the words, oh, just rejoice. If I look at you while you're not smiling and say, hey, come on, rejoice. Does that make you rejoice automatically? Does the command rejoice make you feel happy? Of course it doesn't. Paul is not saying to people who are in a very bad way, hey, will you please feel happy or at the very least fake it and paste a smile on your face? That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying, look, life is pretty hard, but I'm exhorting you. Choose a way of thinking and living and talking and believing that leads to joy. Life is already hard. It's not going to give you a smile every day. It's already tough to live in this world. Why make it harder for yourself by adopting habits and ways of thinking and talking and living that diminish your joy when joy is already hard enough to come by? Change the way that you live so that joy becomes attainable. There is a certain way of living that sucks the joy out of the human heart. And there's a certain way of living that draws us more and more towards joy. And so what Paul is saying is, please, choose to live in the way where joy becomes more of a possibility for you. And he says, now, what is it that blocks your joy? And the thing that that comes to Paul's mind is one of the biggest enemies of Christian joy is legalistic religion. Legalistic religion. In the area where Paul had planted many churches, there was a false teaching around that time by a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. This is a group of people who believed that once you became a Christian, the other part of the, the real completion of that act of conversion is you also had to become a Jew. You had to get circumcised. You had to live under the oppressive weight of the law of Moses. To be a Christian or to follow Jesus required in their minds all the rigorous dietary and ceremonial restrictions and obligations of Judaism. And so that's what they were teaching. Now, on the surface, legalistic people seem really diligent, don't they? They They're so busy being religious. There are so many things they do, all these meetings they have to go to, all these rules they have to observe. They wake up early because, you know, you can't worship God unless you're in a tie. You know, I, I heard that a gazillion times. When I was growing up in the Korean church, once I became a preacher and I stopped wearing a suit, man, did I hear it from people. And they seem so diligent on one level. But here's, my, here's, here's news for you. The legalistic heart is not more diligent, it's lazier. Because it finds real relationship 
too vague, too oppressive, too difficult. So it says, hey, I don't want to worry about whether we're doing okay with each other. I'd rather worry about just whether or not I'm legal. I don't want to, I don't want to be asked the question, are you guys still in love? I just want to know, have I done anything to violate the rules? That's easier to deal with. Just like a pilot with a pre-flight checklist. Done, 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 done. If I can reduce my relationship to God and others to a list of rules, that makes it so much easier to measure whether I'm doing okay. Isn't it easier, for example, to ask a student, hey, what's your GPA? It's a lot harder to go, hey, are you learning anything? Are you growing in wonderment about all the discovered, undiscovered mysteries of life in the world? Huh? What? If I ask the child in, in math class, hey, are you growing more fond of the universal language? Do you see the mysteries of nature's structural design and things like the constant fee? What? But if I say, what did you get in your last quiz? Oh, yeah, I got a 7 out of 10. Done. We need external measures because the reality of actually finding out how we're doing is oppressively difficult and vague. But what, what Paul's teaching is these Judaizers are robbing people of the true joy of knowing God by reducing knowing God to a bunch of things that we do. He had no generous words for these people. He called them dogs. You know, when you call somebody a dog, that wasn't like a term of endearment today. We're like, what's up, dog? You would have gotten punched in the face if you walked into ancient Israel. Hey, what's up, dog? You, what'd you call me? They would throw rocks at you. That's a, that's a swear word. What he says is, watch out for these dogs. Now today, dogs are man's best friend. We wipe their feet with baby wipes when they come in from the lawn. That's, the dogs today are not real dogs. You want to see a real dog the way Jesus' time, Paul's time? Go to Tuba City. Okay? Anyone who's ever been to Tuba City, can I get an Amen. You don't want to touch those dogs. You're, you know, they're like, walking around, drinking out of the sewage. And you're like, that's disgusting. You see these dogs like eating dead bodies. It's just so nasty. And you don't want that dog licking your face. Like, ah. it's, you'll get leprosy if they lick you. That's the dog that Paul saw walking around town. And he said, these dogs fit only to lick sores and to eat waste scavenging around for worthless things. That is what these people are who teach us that to belong to God is to do all the thou shalt and to avoid all the thou shalt nots, to reduce something as wondrous as knowing God to a list of rules. And to pretend that if I do all of these things, then I belong to God. He says, it is so great a robbery. And he says they are mutilators of the flesh because one of the big deals they were saying is if you become a Christian, you have to get circumcised. They were so obsessed with the idea that you can't belong to God if you still have a foreskin. And Paul's like, what does knowing God have to do with foreskins? What does knowing God have to do with what that part of your body looks like? He says, do you realize if you think that that's all it takes, then you have completely lost its meaning. All you're doing is mutilating the flesh. Nothing else 
is accomplished except a piece of your skin is lopped off and a scar forms. That's all you're accomplishing. And then here he says, let me tell you what this Christian faith is really about. It's not about cutting off foreskins. We are the true circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. That right there is a whole other sermon I'm going to spare you from. But this is the picture of true Christianity. Is that we don't reduce it to things we do, but we worship in a way that gives life and genuine transformation. Like there is the spirit that inhabits us as we draw near to God and creates some movement in our soul. And that it is a faith that does not glory in all the things we have done, but it obsesses over that which Christ Jesus has done. And at the end of the day, because what we have done is so worthless compared to what he has done, we put zero confidence in the flesh. Do you know that since I um, became a Christian, I really stopped swearing a lot out loud. Man, I used to swear a lot out loud. I swear a lot less out loud. But that not swearing has added nothing to my righteousness. If it could, then what Jesus did is a laughable joke. True Christianity is marked by these things. And he says, compared to that, what passes for religion and faith in Israel today, Paul is saying, is this. It's the words of Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Religion without relationship kills joy. Just like marriage without love kills joy, there is no value in marriage without love. There's no value in Christianity where there's no relationship just rigorous adherence to a way of life. There is no purpose in that whatsoever. The reason we try to live righteously is to identify with, draw near to God and identify with Him, not so that we can purchase closeness to Him. If you get that wrong, and you have heard these words from this pulpit and many other pulpits before, but if you get that wrong, everything else in your faith life will break. See, at the heart of the Judaizers' error was a distorted idea of what righteousness is. When you hear the word righteousness, what ideas spring to your mind? For most people, their idea of righteousness is something like this. There's like this meter in your soul, and it tips one way or the other. When I do good things, my righteousness meter goes to the righteous side. Where's your... This way. And then when I do bad things, it's like this. And for some of us, you know, you're redlining over here or over here. Some of us, it's like this all day. It's like you could use it as a fan, right? Some of you, you're like a metronome. We could play piano to you. Sin, repent. And that's the way we think it works. It's almost like a Christianized version of Hindu karma. 
If I do good things, my righteousness increases. And if I do bad things, my righteousness decreases. Doesn't that just sound sensible and logical to you? But here's the thing. That is not biblical Christianity. That has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. But admit it, some of you every day in your life live as though that's actually the way it really works. Don't get bored of the sermon if that's true of you. Because it will cost you so much to just go, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before. You may have heard it before, but there's a truth we know up here, and then there's a truth that defines why we get ticked off at our spouse, why we break a friendship, why we can't accept ourselves. There's a truth you know up here, and then the truth you actually live by. And those two things don't always agree. I, I, there's proof of it all over the place in our church community. That there's a gospel we acknowledge in our minds, and then a gospel we have failed to grasp in our lives. If you think that this is the way that it works, boy, you're going to have a very difficult journey trying to make sense of Christianity. And just so you're clear... This is wrong. Your righteousness does not go up because you do good things and does not go down because you do bad things. If that's the case, the cross is not necessary at all. We could just pick any religion in the world and one size fits all. Who really cares? Every religion teaches good things equals good results. Bad things equals bad results. It's just a scale and you keep adding bricks to one side or the other. That's the way every other faith system conceives of righteousness. But if you have a distorted idea of righteousness, then everything that flows out of that will be wrong. These Judaizers had a wrong picture of righteousness and the religion they built afterwards was completely distorted and it was sucking the joy out of people's lives so that when you got under the influence of the Judaizers, you had to stop smiling. Why? Because the quickest way to rob someone of their Christian joy is to tie their standing before God to their moral performance. We parents do that to our children all the time. Mommy and daddy like you when you're doing good things. Oh, you're so good. Come here. Love you so much. Oh, isn't our child wonderful? And then they do a bad thing. Oh, I can't believe I had you kids. I really regret the day you were. Ah, Get out of here. And even if we don't say those words, our eyes and our hearts and our body language say those things. The easiest way to kill a human being's joy is to tie their standing with you to how they perform. None of us wants to be treated that way. Every last one of us wants to get a break. And after we had our second chance, give me a third one. And after I've wasted the third chance, give me a fourth one. That's the way all of us want to be treated. But the easiest way to suck the joy out of another person is to tie their standing to their moral performance. Now, apart from Jesus and the amazing example of the cross, that's all we got. It's how it should work, isn't it? Why should I like you when you do bad things to me? Why should I continue to give you a shot when you failed miserably to keep your promises to me? Well, there's only one answer to that question. Apart from Jesus, there is no reason. You should dump me. I should be disqualified. 
my standing with you should be completely smashed to the ground because I have failed you. But, but raise your hand if you've ever been in a relationship where you have never failed the other person even a little. I mean, there's got to be some of you because we live as though there are some relationships where I've always done right, they've only done me wrong. Come on, be honest. Raise your hand if there's a relationship where you've done nothing but good, godly, right things, and the other person's just wicked and evil, and you don't know why. They... Raise your hand, come on. Don't just tell me at my desk in counseling when you're complaining. Tell me if you've actually done it. Tell the whole church, I'm one example. I've done it. Yeah, I didn't think so. So maybe we should get over ourselves and thinking that somehow you can link your relation to someone, to their performance, because everybody has to live alone on an island then. There's no way for any being to coexist with another being if those are the rules. What Paul said is, these Judaizers, their greatest crime is that they rob us of the joy that is meant to be ours. He said, if that's the way it works, performance equals standing with God, then of all the people in the world, I should be the most confident. You want to talk about righteousness, and he rattles off his resume, and what an impressive resume it is. We can go on for days dissecting this resume. Uh, He's basically saying, look, I got religious purity, I got ethnic purity, cultural purity, legal purity, political purity, moral purity. On every standard of human measure, You guys get D's, I get an A. This is a guy with three degrees from Harvard who started six successful startup.coms. He just, and he's now on The Bachelor because he's so good looking. I mean, that's this guy. Everything is going for him. And when you rattle off an impressive list of accomplishments like this, everyone listening goes, well, if you can't make it, what hope do the rest of us schmoes have? And Paul says, if anybody would succeed in a system where our standing with God is based on our performance, I should be first in line saying the rest of you don't have a hope. But he says, look, even I, with this incredible resume, have come to see something very clearly. I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this great insight. He said that our righteousness, our understanding of our righteousness, is like a resume. And what's a resume? A resume is really an argument that I should be accepted when right now I'm on the outside looking in. I don't work for you, but I would like to. So I will give you a resume, and I will make it sound awfully impressive, because this is my argument that I deserve to be inside and accepted by you. Isn't that what it is? When your parents are like, oh, that's going to go on your record for when you apply to college, and you're like, what's this mysterious record? The record is your argument that I deserve acceptance. And you know, it's not just for college, it's not just for jobs. All of human life and society works on the basis of these resumes, which are our righteousness, our argument that we deserve to be accepted by others, to be accepted by God and by our fellow man. We do this in friendship, don't we? We're always saying, look, I'm going to be a good friend to you. There's value in being friends with me. I'm going to give you gifts. I've got your back. I'll help you move. We're good friends. I'll scratch your back. You're going to scratch mine. There's an exchange here. This is my argument that I am an acceptable friend. We do this in romance, don't we? Guys, you know you stop whining and dining the ladies once you got them. 
Now it's old country buffet all the way, isn't it? But before it was like all this, you know, your voice changes on the phone. Oh, hi, hey, what are you doing? Right? Now it's like, uh, he, you know, heat up the dinner later. I'm going to be home at night. See ya. Isn't that just the way it works? We're constantly making an argument for ourselves that while I'm on the outside, I deserve to be let in. That's righteousness the way we understand it. An argument for our acceptability. And we do that to God and we say, all right, God, I know I'm not perfect, but how you finish that sentence makes all the difference in the world. Because that's your understanding of righteousness. Look, I know I screwed up, but... And what do you say after that? How do you complete that sentence? For some of you, it's, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Come on. Come on. Look at him. If you compare me to him, at least I'm not that bad. Is that your understanding of righteousness? Like the guy being chased by a bear in the woods, you'd have to outrun all your friends. You just have to outrun one of them. Is that how you look at righteousness? Look, I may not be great, but at least there's one guy I know for sure is worse than me. So I'm all right. My goal in life is to not be dead bottom. Or maybe it's, look, I know I screwed up, but last week I did a lot of good stuff. I helped an old lady cross the street. I returned 25 cents to the cashier when she overpaid me in my change. I did some good things. I donated a kidney last week. Come on! That should give me a little bit of credit or something. And maybe that's the way you understand righteousness. It's a transaction where the balances are constantly swaying back and forth. If you understand it that way, you're going to have a very confusing experience being a Christian. Righteousness is not based on what we do. It's based on what we receive from God through Jesus Christ. Here's the way it worked. Paul was clearly the guy with the best resume, the strongest argument for being accepted by God until he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he saw moral perfection. He had moral pretty goodness. And then he saw moral perfection and his eyes were open. Remember when the scales fell out of his eyes and he was blind, but now he could see? What he saw was, what he thought was the top of the heap was the beginning of the bottom of the heap. Let me t- give you a quick illustration. When I graduated from college, I thought I was at least a decent, average basketball player. Depending on which group of friends I was playing with at U of I, I could hold my own. And then I went to, U- to Illinois State University for a semester to study... And there was a park that I knew all the Illinois State University collegiate basketball players hung out at. And I went to that park all the time. And I played pickup games with the ISU starting lineup. Okay, that was, that was a whole other level. And what I learned that semester was, oh my goodness, there's a massive gap between a good recreational player and even a mediocre collegiate player. You know, we were watching TV like, oh, you stink. He doesn't stink. He would, he would wipe the floor with you. The worst college basketball player could wipe the floor with you. And that's what I learned was it's so easy to criticize. So you actually play with these guys. You realize it's not just like, oh, they're a little better than me. It's like another world. You're like, oh, my goodness. They are so much better than me. I can't touch that. And then I thought the worst NBA player 
could take the ISU starting lineup three on one and wipe the floor with them. Have you seen the, the Uncle Drew video with Kyrie Irving? That's awesome. And you start to realize an NBA player, even an average one, the gap between you and them is astronomical. Your eyes will open. You realize even, even Scalabrini, you go one-on-one with Scal, he will waste you with his eyes closed. He can shoot with his buttocks and beat you. Do you understand what I'm saying? That when you see them against each other, it's one thing, but you against them and your eyes just open. You go, the gap is amazing. My whole standard of measure, I can't strut in front of college and professional players. In front of some of you, I could be like, come on, I could trash talk you. But in front of those guys, I'm like, please, don't hurt me. And that's a little bit of the experience we have when we understand whatever you think gives you your moral standing before God. When you encounter Jesus, you realize everything you've stored up is beyond worthless. In fact, Paul calls, we're even more tender and 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 um, appropriate than God is. God just flat out calls it dung, crap. The word is excrement. He considers everything he once held gain to be rubbish. Rubbish is such a proper British sounding word. Rubbish. It sounds so proper. You know, the Greek translation is actually that. That stuff. What is that stuff? It is what your body sucked all the good stuff out of food, and this is what's useless. It spit it out. Get out of here. We don't need that. That's what all this stuff is. These things you thought would give you a better standing before God. We say, hey, God, you know, here's me, and there's all those other guys. You know, I mean, I've been to Tuba City like six times, and I preach, and, you know, I got to do stuff. Come on. I got to at least be like on the platform an inch or so above everybody else. And you think that all those things give you this edge before God. God says, if you really believe that, boy, you have woefully misunderstood this faith. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. The things he once prized he suddenly realizes, have no real power to elevate his standing. Let me give you an illustration that will help make this clearer for some of you. Imagine that you lived in an oppressive dictatorship. And every day life was hard. You had no freedoms. But on the other side of the wall, this great wall, was a land of prosperity and freedom. You heard music coming from the clubs on the other side of that wall. You heard the laughter of children. You, you saw... Something like blue sky on that side. And you look on your side, just gray, drab. And you think, what would it be like to live on the other side of that wall? The problem is you don't have the right papers to make that border crossing. Sounds a lot like Germany, not so long ago. Now imagine that one day, your yearning for that better life became so great and irrepressible You made a fateful decision. That's it. I'm going to risk everything. I'm going to forge papers, and I'm going to attempt a border crossing. And so for three years, you sharpen your skills, you gather all these accomplices, and you put together a set of forged papers that are truly impressive. Everyone you show them to, they're like, wow, that really looks like the real deal, man. Good job. That might actually fly. 
But even though these are amazing forgeries, you're so worried because as you approach the gate, you're thinking, what if they discover what I've done? Then everything is over. Now imagine days before the fateful flight, someone in the government, highly placed, takes pity on you and says, I know you. I'm going to help you get to the other side. And they give you legitimate documents. A full set of legal papers that will get you clear and free across that border crossing. And you're so thankful because now you don't have to worry about the inadequacy of your forgery. So you pack your backpack, you turn off the lights one last time, you're a little flat, and you, you get ready to go, and you're waiting in line, and there's machine gun nests, and those guns are trained at you, there's German shepherds barking, and you're in a line that you can't get out of without raising suspicion, and just as you're approaching the guard, you reach in for the papers, and to your horror, you discover that instead of the real papers the official's given you, you've brought your forged documents with you. You had the real deal available and you picked up the forgery instead. And now you're about to to take the ultimate test and you realize these documents I was so proud of that I worked on for three years are going to spell my death. They are nothing. I had the real thing. I could have walked across with confidence and now there's dread filling my heart because these forgeries are not enough. Why would you choose the forgery over the real thing. That's exactly what Paul expresses when he said, I consider them excrement that I may gain Christ. And wow, when I am at the border crossing, I would be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my sad attempts to obey the law. But having that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Do you know what righteousness is for you? What it is for me? It's that card I pull out when I fail. And I find myself on the outside wishing I could come back in. Back into my marriage, into my friendships, into my relationship with God. Even back into accepting myself. And that's where a lot of us are really on the outside. Is that we have failed and we're so disgusted and frustrated with ourselves. We feel like, what's the point of trying? I'm already past the point of no return. I might as well dirty everything up because really, where do you go from where I've gone? I've already journeyed to places I never thought I'd go. What's the point of pretending there's a better person inside of me? For some of us, the place we're on the outside of is we haven't even accepted ourselves. And the card you pull out trying to argue for your acceptability, that is your understanding of righteousness. And when you say, man, I screwed up, but... That card you reach for determines everything. You get that righteousness wrong. You're going to totally misunderstand the faith. And the the clearest sign that that's happened is that as you walk with Jesus day by day, there will be no joy in your heart. There will just be this heaviness, this discouragement, this ever-increasing gap between you and the people you love. Frustration. Emptiness. We need to understand that the only way we argue for our acceptance 
So we openly admit, look what I've done. What else could I expect from myself? This is what we do. But Jesus Christ has done better. He is the son I could never be to God the Father. He has succeeded everywhere that I have failed. Every time I see flaws in myself, I look at Jesus and see somebody who has been strong in the very place where I've proved myself weak beyond hope. And I say, thank you, Jesus, that when the Father looks at me, you always stand in front of me. He said, don't look at them. Look at me. And God the Father accepts us because his favorite son stands before us and shields us and says, Ted, don't punish him for what he did. I took that punishment already. Let him go. I'm with him. I know you know these concepts. But it is so important that you let this truth actually direct the way you experience your Christianity. Here's one of the ways you're going to know if it's taking root. Because you see, the way we think God accepts or rejects us is exactly the way that we accept or reject other people. Isn't it? If you think God accepts or rejects you based on your moral performance, I promise you that is the only way you're going to deal with your fellow man. It's the way you'll deal with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's the way you'll deal with your buddies, your neighbors, your coworkers, your boss, your spouse, your children. Everyone around you, you will be conditional and you will tie your favor towards them entirely based on how they perform. And when they do good, the sun will shine from you. And when they do bad, the clouds will cover the sky. And they know that's how it works with you. And the only reason you do it that way is because you believe that's the way God does it with you. A distortion of of the gospel has devastating consequences for our lives. It will poison every other relationship. I see this all the time in marriages, in friendships, in dating relationships. People who have no grace to give who cannot deal with each other and let anything go. Do you know who one of the most gracious people is in my life towards me? Is my wife, Jeannie. Over the history of our relationship, the reason we haven't fought as much, she has this amazing capacity to let stuff go when it comes to me. She's working on it with the kids, but... (laughs) But I get it. (laughs) But when it comes to me... I am the beneficiary of this amazing history of just letting it slide. That's why we have a good marriage. It's not because I'm a great guy, but because the gospel is living and active in our marriage, at least at that level. And I want to really encourage you to think about your own relationships. Because if you don't understand the gospel, the only other path available to you is the path of being a scorekeeper. A blame assigner. A spiritual accountant. And when someone has wronged you, you will not have language or capacity to get past it. 
until they do their penance, until they jump through the hoops, you cannot have a relationship with them because their failure is like the giant stick in the mud. Look what you've done. How can I have a relationship with you? Look what you did. And the only way we can sustain that posture is because we don't understand God never does that to us. He never does that to us. The minute we own up to what we've done and ask Christ to cover us, that deed is overlooked. You don't become better, but you become acceptable in Christ so that maybe, just maybe, we can keep journeying together and grow. And Maybe, if we're patient enough and gracious enough, by the end of this long journey, we might actually be more like Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Why do you think the first word Paul chooses to describe love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is patient? Because love that bails out after three strikes never sees what love can be. Quitting love is never real love. Real love, gospel love, keeps persisting because by the grace of Jesus Christ, I can deal with you even after you wound me. Nothing will erase what you did. But the blood of Christ will cover what you did so that I can still walk with you. If you don't learn that, you're going to kill your families. You're going to kill your marriages. You're going to kill every friendship you ever engage in. Everyone will fail you, and you will fail everyone. How's that for a feel-good summer sermon? Everyone will fail you, and you, yeah, you, will fail everyone. I have already failed every last one of you more times than you can imagine. You've all failed me. At some point, I'm sure of it. How are we going to live together? By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though we have sinned, covers over a multitude of sins with his grace and love. That's enough from me. Why don't we go to God? How are you doing with the joy quotient these days? Has it been days, weeks, months? Could it be that it's been years since you felt a genuine emotion you could call joy? Now, I know it's tempting when you don't have joy to assign the blame to many other people and things. And you're not all wrong when you do that. Years of joblessness will discourage anybody. Traumatic illness will knock the wind out of anybody. Marriage that's falling apart, a friendship that's breaking, that is hard to live with. And I know that at least in large part, your joylessness is related to the failings of others. But don't be so quick to assume that that's all there is going on. Because part of the reason you struggle without joy is that the gospel and righteousness may be misunderstood. So I'm going to invite you to take a moment to reckon with the way you see this world, the way it works. If 
all this time you discover you've been working off of this broken picture of righteousness, it's time to let that go. Your standing with God does not depend on the good that you do or the bad that you do. It only stands on the amazing gift of the righteousness of Jesus assigned to you. It's the only way we stand. And if we really understood that, our friendships and our relationships and our marriages would be revolutionized and would be healed. So let's pray. Would you ask the Lord to strengthen your grasp of this true gospel? Give you the courage to live this way, even starting this very day, this very moment. God, help us to be freed from our fruitless flailing about, trying to build this argument that we are acceptable to you. We are not ever going to be acceptable to you, but your son Jesus will always be acceptable to you. We thank you that he has covered us with his credit. We thank you, God, that in the gospel of the good news of Jesus, this matter of acceptability has been answered once and forever. We are acceptable to you because Jesus was acceptable to you. How freeing if we could just lay hold of that. And God, because this is true, help us not to hold others in bondage to our unforgiveness and our distorted picture of justice. Help us to accept others on the basis of your redeeming work and not on what they have done and failed to do. Help us to treat others the way you have always treated us. And as you do this great work, begin to heal the broken relationships in this church. Please do this by your great power. It would be a miracle if these relationships were repaired. But you can do this through the gospel. And so we implore you, God, to come and do that strong work that we are powerless to do. Come and repair our relationships to the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And along the way, restore our joy as Christians. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.